good morning, church. So good to have you out. I guess I already said good morning, huh? Because I've been doing announcements. I'm catching up. Uh, thanks for being here. We're going to be in the, the book of John, John chapter 20. We're just a couple sh chapters shy of finishing the gospel of John. John chapter 20. What's that? Yeah, you're missing a chapter, so. And the 20th chapter of John is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so this is a passage of scripture that is preached every Easter, right? And so I, my challenge this week was to, to preach a, a passage that is well known and often preached. And um, it's, it's a historical narrative, right? It's John explaining to us what he saw occur after Christ's crucifixion on the cross. And so we're just going to let John tell the story this morning. We're going to read through the entire chapter of John 20, and we're just going to uh, allow John to give an explanation of what he, his account of what's happened. And then there's just a few things at the end that I think that we can take away from what John has done here in John chapter 20, bringing everything full circle, bring it into uh, uh, just uh, the, the complete package of the gospel presentation that John has given us from beginning in John chapter 1 all the way through the end of the book. So he's in his concluding thoughts, and, and he's demonstrating to us uh, Jesus' bodily resurrection from the grave, which is of utmost importance, right? There's many people that have claimed to be some Messiah figure who say that they're Jesus or the, they're God, and that uh, by following them that uh, you could have eternal life and all those there's many people who claim to be god's leader in this world and their bones are still in the grave there's only one the lord jesus christ who went to the cross paid the penalty for our sin not for his but for ours god's wrath was poured upon him and it has only been jesus who has risen from the grave who three days later rose over death provided victory over death by vanquishing death and sin and the consequences of sin he demonstrated his 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 vicarious work on the cross his substitutionary atonement was completely satisfactory to the father for sin and in him rising from the grave all those who believe and receive jesus as their savior have the promise of the new life that is to come, the glorified state where you and I will rise from the graves in a glorified body and have an eternal presence and live in an eternal place with our God, where God will be amongst his people and we will be with our God. All because of what Jesus has done and the proof of Jesus sacrificial work being satisfactory to the Father, to our God, is because of the fact that he rose from the grave. It's such an important doctrine that he not only didn't just rise in a spiritual sense, uh, he bodily rose from the grave, and we'll see that this morning. So if you have your Bibles with you, John chapter 20, we'll begin in verse 1, and we'll let John tell us what he's described here, or what he saw. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and she saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. And so she went to Simon Peter and to the other disciples, 
the, the disciple, the one Jesus loved. We know that's John, right? He often always refers to, to himself as the one that Jesus loved. What a great way to explain yourself. What's your name? Well, I'm the one that Jesus loved. Loved so much he died for me, right? The one Jesus loved and said to them, and they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. And that, at that, Peter and the other disciples went out heading for the tomb. So Mary automatically believes that somebody's up to something, that the, the Jewish leaders or the Roman leaders somehow snatched Jesus' body and took it away so that his body couldn't be, you know, put on display or they, they, they knew, you know, that he was had many followers. And so Mary automatically assumed the worst. And we had the benefit of hindsight of knowing that Jesus rose from the grave. And Mary, I mean, we can understand where she's coming from, right? Who would expect someone that you loved and, and have followed to die and then rise from the grave three days later? And that's exactly what happened with Mary here. At that, Peter and the other disciples went out heading for the tomb. The, other, the two were running together. So they're like, oh, my goodness. So they're running to the tomb. But the other disciple outran Peter. So John's trying to be humble here, right? He's trying to say, I'm faster than Peter. I beat Peter to the grave. And he got to the tomb first. In verse 5, stooping down, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. So John stayed outside of the tomb. And then following him, Simon Peter also came, and he entered the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. The wrapping that had been on his head was not laying with the linen cloths, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. And so we, with the benefit of hindsight, realize and understand that Jesus, when he rose from the grave, when he rose up and began to take off these burial cloths, these linen cloths, he, he was very meticulous about how he laid them. And he folded the shroud that was upon his face and, and made it to the point where these uh, John and Peter had to stop and wonder, what is going on here? Why is this cloth, linen cloth? still there and, and, and wrapped and folded in such a manner. And the other disciples who had reached the tomb first then also went in and saw and believed. And so obviously John's trying to explain to us, he has a little bit of trepidation. He's like, he sees the linen cloths. He's, he's peering in the grave and he doesn't know if the body's there or not. He, he sees and then Peter runs in there and so he follows and says, oh wow, he really, his body truly is gone. Verse 9, for they did not yet understand the scripture that he had must rise from the dead. So John's telling what's going on in their hearts. They, they didn't understand. They, they're, they're trying to make sense of this, and, and they're not thinking about the fact that Jesus, how many times have we seen in John where Jesus told his disciples, look, I'm going to have to go to the cross and die, but I will come back to you. I will return to you. And how many times we saw that they just didn't quite get it. And and I believe John's even pointing further back to the Old Testament, to the, to the prophecies in the Old Testament in Isaiah and Ezekiel, that the, the Messiah figure would be cut off, would need to be cut off, would need to die. And, and we know that the Jewish uh, history, in Jewish history, that the, the rabbis would debate back and forth whether or not that the Messiah was actually one person, that there was two Messiah figures, because they looked at the Old Testament and they saw that this Messiah was, on one hand, a suffering servant and, and would suffer. And then on the other hand, they saw this Messiah figure as a victorious victor and king. 
And they said, well, maybe it's just that there's two. There's a precursor Messiah, and then the, the, the final Messiah would come, and they would go back and forth. But we have the benefit of knowing that it is one Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has two advents. He's come here in the Scripture as a baby, born of the Holy Spirit, raised under the law, fulfilled the law to its fullest, without sin, 100% man, 100% God. He stepped into his creation so that he become a human so that he could take the sacrifice on our account. And he was without sin, like the sin that we're born with. And he could go and fulfill that requirement of the spotless sacrifice that God desired and demanded. And that's who our Jesus was. That's what he's done for us in the gospel. He, he went, he, he fulfilled the law, he, he lived this life, he went to the cross, and then he died in our place. Vicarious substitution atonement. He, he took the wrath of sin upon himself. Our sin. For all those who would believe. He took that payment for you. And that's his first advent. He rose from the grave. Forty days later, he ascended to the right hand of the Father. But Scripture declares that he's coming back again. That he's not coming back as a suffering servant any longer. He's coming back as the victorious king where he will render judgment for all the evil, all the sin that has been poured out in this world and has been corrupted by the sin. All those things will stand under his judgment. And so we have the benefit of seeing, in the hi of hindsight, of seeing Jesus fulfilling both the suffering servant and the conquering king as the Messiah figure. Verse 9, for they, they did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Isaiah 53, talking about him having to rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying, so most likely the upper room there in verse 10. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she was crying, she stopped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been lying one at the head and the other at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you crying? Her response, Because they have taken away my Lord, she told them. And I told you, and I don't know where they have put him, right? Mary's still thinking that the soldiers or the Jewish leaders took his body. I don't know where they put him. She appeals to him. Having this said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know it was Jesus. Could you imagine? Woman, Jesus said to her, why are you crying? Who is it that you're seeking? Supposing he was the gardener. More irony. John loves irony, right? Mary thought it might have been the gardener when it was truly was the creator of the universe, the king of kings. Supposing he was the gardener, she replied, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you put him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary, turning around, she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. It's that term of respect as we go to colleges and we want to get a good grade, so we tell, call our, our professors, right? Professor, 
right, is a term of respect. And then the religious context, Rabboni, is a term of respect and sees, recognizes Jesus and cries out to him with this term of respect in the religious context. And she sa- he says to her, don't cling to me in verse 17. Jesus told her, since I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. Yes, Jesus is talking to Mary at this point. And he's telling them to tell the brothers, the disciples, look, I'm going to, I'm sending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. And this just resonates in my heart that us 2,000 years later have that same opportunity to rejoice in knowing that our creator God is through the vicarious work of Jesus Christ is truly our heavenly father. And truly, our God, we've been adopted into his family. And he's ascending to our Father and our God, those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them what he had said to her. And when it was evening on that first day of the week, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because they feared the Jews. And Jesus came stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. It's that Jewish greeting that they still use to this day. Shalom. Shalom alakem. Peace be with you is the greeting. And Jesus walks into this upper room and says, Shalom to you. Peace. God's peace is what shalom means. God's peace be with you. And it's just a normal greeting that, like I said, they still use. But how true it is for Jesus to proclaim this. Because of his accomplished work, him going to the cross, paying the penalty, and then having victory over death. All of us who are in Christ Jesus can truly have peace in our hearts. It doesn't matter what happens in this world. Those of us who are in Christ Jesus have the promise of this eternal life that is to come. And I remember what it was like to live in this world without the peace of God, without knowing and having a relationship with my God. And that's why we're here, right? That's why we want to witness to those around us so that they too can have and experience this peace that only comes in the relationship with our God through believing and receiving Jesus Christ as their Savior and by faith receiving that gift of salvation. Jesus came, stood among them, and said, Peace be with you. How true it is. Jesus has gave us the provision of peace in his accomplished work. Verse, verse 20, having said this, he showed them his hands and his side. His glorified state still has these wounds. But as he was pierced on the cross, and he showed them these wounds to the disciples. So the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Talk about the understatement, right? you imagine have you ever done that i'll be working sometimes and i'll be just praying and and just kind of moved about and i remember one time in la i was working and i had to go walk up these stairs and i was just in this mindset of man imagine if jesus was at the top of these stairs when i got there and i got to see him face to face you know and i'm walking up the stairs and all of a sudden this this like 
uh, just in my heart, I just thought like, oh man, could you imagine he, if he was truly there? You know, and I got to the top and he wasn't there. But one day, one day, we will see Jesus face to face. We will rejoice as these disciples rejoiced in the upper room when they saw the resurrected Lord. Verse 21, Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. Again, Shalom Alakim. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And so he's commissioning now his disciples. And we know the great commission that goes beyond the disciples to those who, who believe and receive Jesus. God has put us on mission, the great commission, to go into the highways and to the hedges and compel those to come in, to feast with the Lord through the saving work of Jesus Christ, to go into all the world and proclaim the good news and making disciples of Jesus, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And he's commissioning here the disciples for this mission that he's sending them on and ultimately us on. These 2,000 years later, the charge is still to his church to, to, to go out and proclaim the good news. Verse 22, here's a difficult verse. Caused me much consternation through the week. After saying this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. And I say it caused me consternation because we know in Acts chapter 2 is when the Spirit was ultimately fulfilled, the, the promise of Jesus, of the Spirit uh, coming in and indwelling the believer, hearts of the believers and coming into the, onto the church is painted for us in Acts chapter 2, 40 days later, right? After Jesus ascends, that's when the Spirit comes. And then we have here this passage of Scripture saying that Jesus says, uh, breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And so how can we reconcile the two? And, and um, I, I firmly believe that this is a symbolic gesture that Jesus is making. He breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit symbolically. And, and it literally does not happen until he ascends to the Father in Acts chapter 1 and then, and then comes down upon the church in Acts chapter 2. This is a symbolic representation of what Jesus is doing. Jesus is, after all, God, right? God in the flesh. And if we find in Genesis chapter 1, we see God making the, the creating the, the heavens and the earth, and then he looks and he makes man. And what does he do? He takes dirt and he breathes life into the dirt to create man. God breathes. He breathes upon Adam and makes him alive. And Jesus is demonstrating his deity yet again. John is pointing out his deity yet again to us that just as in Genesis, God breathing life into Adam, the resurrected Jesus comes to his disciples and says, and breathes upon them and says, I've given you life. I'm breathing life upon you, the new life, the eternal life given to us. And, and in that, we're given the Holy Spirit. So it's symbolically pointing to what will happen on that day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And if you disagree with me, I want to know about it, right? I spent a lot of time reading it, and there's different opinions, but that's ultimately what I've arrived at. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. He's commissioning them, and then he's giving them authority. He's giving the disciples authority. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. He's he's. John's recorded this for us in the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to demonstrate that the, 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 the apostles truly did have Christ's authority upon the earth. And ultimately that authority gets transferred to the church. In Matthew chapter 18, we have um, 
the church discipline passage. Most people call it church discipline, but it's really the, it's the church reconciliation. It's a, an attempt to, to reconcile with one another when we have differences within the church with one another. And if you follow Matthew 18, you'll see that if you have someone something against your brother, you're supposed to go to that brother in private and, and confront them. And if they don't listen to you, then you bring a mediator. And, and if they don't listen to that, then you bring the church. And if they don't listen to that, you're to treat them as an unbeliever. Right? That's God's way in keeping his bride pure. That's the authority that has been given and transferred to us. And so that is or through the through the apostles. And it's again not to get someone out, out of the church, it's an attempt to reconcile them, that they would listen, that they would hear that there's something going on in their life. That Christ's bride would remain pure and Christ's thought the church was so important he died for it and so that's why you and i need to deem and view these things these hard things right in the west it's typical when you you confront someone about something going on in their life they they get upset and they go down to the next church but what we should really be doing is taking that as a as a call to man this this is an opportunity for me to grow i'm so thankful for a brother or a sister who who's called something out in my life that that is hindering me and i'm blind to Instead of a, an attack, it's a, it's a demonstration of love given to one another as we do that. And I'll say it again today, as I've said many times, if you see something in my life that's hindering our church or my walk or my family, I want to know about it. Come and talk to me. I know I can be blind to those things. Anyway, that's kind of a rabbit trail. We'll go back to the text here. So Jesus commissioned them. Jesus gives them authority. And then verse 24, but Thomas, called twin, one of the 12, was not with them when Jesus came. And here we know, we know this story, right? Doubting Thomas, poor Thomas. And verse 25, so the other disciples were telling them, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, oh no. Oh no. If I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands, put my finger into the mark of the nails and put my hands into his side, I will never believe. And so he says, look, unless I see this Jesus, and I, was, I actually have the ability to put my fingers in those, those wounds and, and, and put my hands in the, in the nail or the, the wound in the side, there's no way I'm going to believe. I will never believe, he says. And then a week later, verse 26, his disciples were indoors again, and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Shalom alakim, right? Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Could you imagine? I bet you Thomas is just in the corner going, oh, brother. Right? I don't know, but that's what I'm thinking. It's happening. He's like, oh, man. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. And what is Thomas's response? Thomas responded to him, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. And I think it's just beautiful as John is, is concluding his remarks in his gospel. He's bringing us full circle through the story of Thomas. 
He's bringing us full circle from his introduction of who Jesus was. Remember back in John 1.1? 1, 1? John introduced Jesus in this way. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. John's bringing us full circle in its conclusion where in the beginning he tells us what Jesus was. God in the flesh. And then we see in John chapter 20 in the interaction with Thomas, we see who Jesus was. God in the flesh coming to seek and to save those who are lost. In a personal manner. Salvation is not wrapped up in a religion. You're not saved because you go to a Christian church. You're not saved because you've been baptized as a Christian or, or any other works, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of works. But it's a personal encounter with Jesus. A personal recognition of your sin before a holy God. An understanding that that sin has kept you separated and will keep you separated from all of eternity from your Creator God, who you were designed to be dependent upon. And it's only through Jesus that you can have reconciliation with God. Jesus was God in the flesh. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And John brings us full circle to the importance of understanding not only who Jesus was, but making sure that we have a personal encounter with Him, a transaction of faith when you understand who you are and what Jesus has done. And by believing and receiving His accomplished work, that he made for you, you can have eternal life. And I just love how John just paints this picture uh, all throughout his gospel. Remember in John chapter 3, Nicodemus coming to um, Jesus at night. He's a religious leader, and he says, you know, what's going on? Who are you? And, and Jesus says, you must be born again. You must be born from above. And it's the work of the Spirit that does those things. And he, he gives Nicodemus... An example here in John 3.14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, right? In the Old Testament story, the children of Israel were disobedient yet again. God sent vipers to, to kill those who were disobedient and hard-heartened. Moses pleased to God for, for salvation from these vipers. And God said, put a serpent on an iron serpent on a staff and tell all those who will look to the serpent they will be saved from the poison. They will not die. And all those who believed God's promise in that looked to the serpent and lived. And Jesus, as he's going through his earthly ministry, way back in John 3, begins to point people, as the Son of Man will be lifted up upon the cross, all those who look to him will live. But it's a personal choice. It's a personal matter between you and God. Salvation is not found in religion. Salvation is found in a person. And you must have that encounter with him. And you must look upon the Son of Man who died for you. John 8, remember that, in his encounter with the religious leaders, the things are getting really divisive right now, and they've already determined that they're going to kill Jesus. And so they're trying to trap him. And he, one of his responses to these religious leaders was in John chapter 8. So Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, you will know that I am he. And we know 
that key at the end there is just a clause that is put on it for the English translation. But, but what is really said there in the Greek is, I am. You will know that I am. Ego me. Pointing to the fact that he's referencing himself as the I am of the Old Testament. As God. In the flesh. He declares himself to be the I am. Moses asks, who should I tell God's people has sent me? And he's tell, God tells him, tell them that I am has sent you. I am that I am. And Jesus comes upon the scene and declares himself to be God in the flesh. And if we, as we followed out John 8, we knew that he declared himself to be the I am one last time, right? Before Abraham was, I am. Ego of me. And the religious leaders picked up stones to stone him because they knew he was committing, they thought he was committing blasphemy, declaring himself to be God. And we see this full circle. John saying, in the beginning, God was in the flesh. He dwelt among us. And just as this God came in the flesh, he would one day come and be lifted up upon the cross. When you see, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And then we come to Thomas's encounter where he finally gets it. Jesus dies on the cross, bodily resurrected, able to put his fingers in the wounds, and he believed. And so what's Jesus' response in verse 29? Jesus said, Because you have seen me, you have believed. And blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believe. It's a matter of faith. 2,000 years later, hopefully everyone in this room can say, I'm so blessed to have had the opportunity to hear the gospel message and by faith, not able to put our fingers in Jesus' wounds, by faith hearing this gospel message that John has painstakingly laid out for us and written and God has promised to preserve this inspired word all these years later, we can look back on this verse and go, that's us. 2,000 years later, we have the opportunity to believe, to place our faith in Jesus Christ and his accomplished work alone. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. I pray that's you this morning. Verse 30, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples. The that are not written in this book. He'll go on to say in 20, uh, chapter 21 that he did so many things that the books in the world couldn't contain it, right? Hyperbolically speaking. He says, Jesus performed these other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written. He says, I've taken these examples, these, these miracles that I've demonstrated to you, his declarations, his I am statements, right? I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. All those I am statements. John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has combined all these things, and God has promised to preserve this word for us so that we also can believe that what? That these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised anointed one. He's the Son of God, the only unique begotten from the Father, the only one who has come down from heaven. He is Him. 
that we may believe he's the Messiah, the promised one, the Son of God, God in the flesh, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And we can trust it because Jesus rose from the grave. He had victory over death. It's an historical account, factual account that's occurred. And we can put our eternity in the hands of Jesus because we can trust that God, who's promised to preserve his word, has preserved this for us, that by placing our faith in Jesus' accomplished uh, work on being crucified on the cross, that God's wrath was appeased upon that day, and that in paying the full penalty because he's the eternal God, paying that eternal penalty one time, he was able to be victorious over death, rising from the grave. It's the gospel. And we see the importance of the resurrection of the part of the gospel uh, in the fact, uh, as we've demonstrated today, but Paul says here, just as we close, in 1 Corinthians 15, he gives us the importance of the resurrection, of why it's so important. Not only that Jesus rose from the grave, but also understanding who Jesus truly was, right? How many times has John made, made it a point to bring Christ's deity, that Jesus was in fact God in the flesh. He wasn't just another created being. He wasn't just a good example. He was God in the flesh. And in John 8, remember what Jesus said to the religious leaders? I am from above. You are from beneath. I am not of this world, but you are. And if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sin how important it is to believe in the right Jesus, our creator God in the flesh. Those are the words of Jesus himself. We have to get Jesus right. And the importance of the, of the resurrection, there's throughout church history, those that would deny that Jesus' resurrection was actually bodily or any other things. And Paul's writing here to the Corinthian church saying, look, it's so important to hold fast to the resurrection of Jesus. Without Jesus bodily raising from the grave, we're here for no reason. Let's just start the barbecue and have some burgers and have a good time because there's no other need to be here if Jesus hasn't raised from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes this, Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received. So he's given us the gospel. He's like, I'm going to make it clear. This is the gospel. Because religions want to make the gospel so much more and so much more complicated. But this is the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved. This is the gospel that saves. If you hold fast to the message, if you have faith in the message, the good news that Jesus died for you, I'm sorry, I'm ad-libbing here. If you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So it says, unless you believed in vain, unless Jesus really hasn't risen from the, the dead, been risen from the dead from the grave this is the message that will save you and this is it for I pass on to you of most importance what I also received that Christ died crucifixion for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried as we've been going through we've seen that right and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures that is the gospel it's an historical event. That is what saves, receiving and believing Jesus died for you. 
that and given, being given new life. He goes on in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 15 to demonstrate to us the importance of the resurrection. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can someone of you, some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? So some of the Jewish people believed that uh, there was no resurrection from the dead, and other Jewish people did. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were always bickering about whether there was a resurrection of the dead or not. And so Paul's bringing this into light. There's no resu- How can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been risen or has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain. And so is your faith. If Christ hasn't raised from, has been raised from the grave, or he did not, was truly not victorious over death, then our faith that we're placing this morning is in vain. But good news, Jesus rose from the grave, providing victory over death. Paul would go on in 1 Corinthians 15 to say, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is your victory? The peace of God, shalom, that was in the Garden of Eden, that was so messed up with sin, can, has been restored through what Jesus has done. Yes, there's still sin in this world, but we know this is not the end of the story. Jesus came to his disciples and said, Peace be unto you. My proclamation this morning for us, for those of us that are in Christ Jesus, peace be unto you. Shalom has been restored. There's coming a day where we see Jesus face to face. And we will say, death, where is your sting? Sting, grave, where is your victory? God, so good to us. He's done so much for us in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we just are so thankful for this opportunity to be able to read the the historical account of what our Lord and Savior has done for us, Lord, how he went to the cross, paid the penalty that I deserve. Every day I prove that. He paid it for me. He paid it for all those who would believe, Lord. We're so thankful. And we're so thankful knowing that as we place our faith and trust in that, that he's demonstrated his power You've demonstrated your power through rising Jesus from the grave and being victorious over death and all those, the promise, the promise, God, that all those who are in Jesus have no condemnation. You're so good to us. And that we await this time where we will be glorified. We will be raised eternally. We will be in bodies without sin or sickness or death, Lord. And we will reign with you. We will be amongst our God. We will see our Lord and Savior face to face. We're so thankful, Lord, for your good, gracious love that you've demonstrated in the gospel. And it's my prayer, Lord, that you put a fire in our hearts to share the good news to those around us who desperately need to hear that Jesus died for them as well. I pray that there's, if there's anyone in this building this morning that your spirit would do a work. I, I know I can't save them, Lord, but I desperately desire your spirit to woo and to convict them of their need to receive Jesus and that would be a reality today. God, I pray that you would receive glory in that. I pray that you would receive glory in our lives as we step out of this church building this afternoon, as we go into our week, Lord, that you'd receive glory in our actions and our attitudes towards others and that you would use us 
be the light of the world, to be the salt of the earth, Father, so that others may come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. We ask it in his precious name. Amen. All right, we're just going to have a song of invitation. If this is a time, if you have not had that personal encounter, as Thomas is, is referenced with the Lord Jesus, I pray that now is the time that you would receive Jesus as your Savior, that you would have that